Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. In introducing his new book, Crerar's Lieutenants, Inventing the Canadian Junior Army Officer, 1939-1945, to published by the University of British Columbia Press, Jeffrey Hayes makes the point that his study builds on what is already an impressive amount of literature. He points to books written decades ago, as well as fresh doctoral studies. I have to say that much of this was entirely new to me. I'm not a military historian and really had no more than a hunch that there was a goldmine of information out there ready for exploration. Hayes' new book explores the work of General H.D.G. Crerar, known more commonly as Harry Crerar, and the way he shaped the Canadian Army that helped defeat Hitler's Nazis. Professor Hayes teaches in the Department of History at the University of Waterloo, and we reached him by phone at his office. Jeffrey, welcome to the mic. Thank you, Patrice. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to start with a very general question. What is the state of military history in this country today? It's pretty good. Uh, we have uh, across the country at various centers in, in places like Victoria, uh, Calgary, Waterloo and Laurier in Ontario, UNB in uh, Fredericton. We've got a core of people that are attracting students all the time. We've got a healthy uh, publication in Canadian military history that's published out of Laurier that, uh, that, that does some great work, reflects a whole set of ideas that young students are bringing to the, to the discussions about war and society. We've really um, developed, I think, a pretty healthy community and a good community of scholars and students that are, that are working on all sorts of topics. It's good. This is good news because it wasn't like that for a long time. But do you get to teach what you write? I mean, do you have military history courses at Waterloo? Oh, yeah. And they attract students too, Patrice. Really? And, and, oh, they do, they do. I mean, I get to teach uh, courses on uh, Warren Society the fourth year and at graduate level. Um, our arrangement at the, at the university with Laurier and Guelph always has a strong contingent of, of students that are taking Warren Society. Um, I've done a course on Canada and Second World War now for over 20 years. That's always well subscribed. I've, a third year course on the first world war that certainly always attracts students. So there's a, there's always a, uh, an interest. And is it so your sense that out, is, out of the faculties, you know, will have an interest in, in war and all of its various aspects. So it's, it, it always draws, I think it always has a fairly healthy draw. Is it your sense that this is uh, representative of the experience across the country? Well, I think certainly uh, uh, those courses are, are ones that uh, that continue to to have a popularity and uh, and and I think that they evolve too. So the connections that we used to have 20 years ago were people whose families were somehow part of the war efforts in the first or second world war, and now you're seeing a growing group of people whose whose interests are related perhaps to gender, to ethnicity, to questions about war and memory. The war and memory field is enormous with someone like uh, Jonathan Vance at Western, who uh, is certainly one mm -hmm. of the most popular and, and uh, uh, prolific, but, but also, you know, always draws a, a good share of graduate students to, uh, to, to look at what we'd call, I guess, the cultural turn in relation to war and society. I don't have to tell you this. Uh, history departments across the country are concerned that their number of students is declining. 
Is, yeah. is, is war in society or war to court um, something that could be better used by history departments to attract students? Uh, well, I think that if, if we see it as, a, uh, as an evolving discipline, just as so many topics are evolving, I think that one of the rich areas that we're looking at is, is simply the, the way in which war in society you know, reflect so many of the kind of current trends in historical study. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so suddenly we can find some wonderful papers about uh, some students of ours have just published in Canadian Military History. That's the, the name of the website, CanadianMilitaryHistory.com. And that journal, you know, publishes things on First World War songs, on, uh, on elements of, of memory, on, on the memoir experience, on letter writing. I mean, these are things that people in, in what we call social history have long been interested in. And it's really cool to see how we're kind of breaking down some silos perhaps not as quickly as we're breaking them down in, in Great Britain. Mm. But the idea of studying uh, letters, of which, of course, there are hundreds, the Canadian Letters and Images Project out west is a terrific example of that. It, it's attracting students because there's a really great body of primary material and there's some really good questions to ask. Inevitably, war attracts attention, doesn't it? Well, it does. And and I think that, that there's always that commemorative element that that you know, especially at this time of year in November that somehow uh, raises its profile. And that's, and that's fine. I think we've always been, I'm a student of Terry Copps at Wilfrid Laurier and Terry always talks about this idea of informed remembrance that we should know something about these issues rather than to be involved in a kind of empty form of, uh, of commemoration. And, uh, and so, you know, the kinds of questions that we continue to ask are really quite exciting. It is fascinating. So you're talking about November. We're going to be broadcasting this in November. Um, Certainly one of the things, uh, we're going to talk about generals now. Um, Certainly one of the people whose name has been evoked over the last few years has been the name of Arthur Curry because of his important role in the First World War and the Battle of Vimy and what happened in late 17 and 1918. but we want to talk about Harry Crerar today uh, because he had a pivotal role uh, in creating the Army of the Second World War, the subject of your book. Who was Harry Crerar? The reality is that even though you call your book Crerar's Lieutenants, you actually don't talk about Crerar a whole lot in your book. Who was this man? Well, uh, I should say that a, a dear colleague of mine, Paul Dixon, wrote a really good biography Indeed. of Crerar. Indeed. And, uh, and as, as you know, and and... Um, Paul really gets at uh, a very quiet, very uh, enigmatic kind of individual who was uh, a very astute politician, uh, certainly wasn't all that charismatic, didn't, doesn't come up in the kind of Rick Hillier mold that we might know of, uh, of recent generals in, Can- in the Canadian past. But uh, I think in, in the kind of way in which he both conceived of and then led the Canadian Army in the Second World War, as as Paul says, uh, he's an enormously powerful in, influence. Uh, he didn't leave memoirs. He didn't write an autobiography. His, the career our papers are up in Ottawa at the archives, and and uh, still is someone who, as I say, has a has an enormous influence on the way in which 
the Canadian Army is is kind of constructed. So you referred to Paul Dixon's book. I, I just want to cite it for our, our listeners. It's Paul Dixon, a thoroughly Canadian general, a biography of General H.D.G. Crerar, published by the University of Toronto Press about ten years ago. Yeah. Um, but Jeffrey, what, what's your sense about Harry Crerar? We know he was born in 1888. Um, so he's fighting the Second World War as a middle-aged man. But what's what's his past? What informs his approach to the Second World War? A few things. He's born in uh, Hamilton, Ontario, to a fairly wealthy background. His father's a lawyer. Uh, and I think social class is certainly a big element in how he understands what the, what the uh, officer corps should be. Um, he's, he's a teacher. He's, uh, by, at the beginning of the war, he's the um, commandant of the Royal Military College. And he certainly has a strong British influence, both in his background and in his education. He's one of the few professional army officers that emerge from the First World War and decide to make the military a profession. He saw battle in the First World War? He did. He did. He fired his guns on Vimy Ridge in 1917. Mm. So by 1939, he's one of 455 permanent force officers. I mean, that's a tiny, tiny number of people. Right. And he will emerge as the uh, central general, as I say, who will kind of build and then fight the army. So not a charismatic guy, but he he's somebody who thinks very cl- closely of of trying to ensure, you know, that the army is built in a way that's acceptable to the Canadian government and the Canadian people. So he's, he's a kind of interesting contradiction in some ways. Uh, and yet he, uh, uh, as I say, in that typical Canadian fashion, doesn't boast about his, his record after the war. He largely retires and, and retires into obscurity. So, so, so lots yeah. of things there that we, we can think about with Harry Crea. Well, what's your impression of the man? I mean, what, if, if you encountered him at a bar in 1939, what, what would he be like? The quiet guy in the corner or the guy at the bar? What kind of character? Know. What's your sense of, of the man? A quiet man? Analytical man? Certainly analytical. Uh, I, I think that he is, if one looks at the experience, I think Granite Steam talks about him in his book, The Generals, which is a great book. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, the war broke so many of these people. As you say, he's a middle-aged man. The task that he is given is, is almost beyond comprehension. Uh, building an army both in England and Canada, trying to make sure that it's going to play an effective role. And that's yet to be determined, of course, even after 1940, uh, when everything goes bad. He's trying to make sure that it's built on a voluntary system. He's trying desperately to learn lessons from the, from what few kind of military operations are happening. He's trying to incorporate all kinds of things that, that most of his colleagues would have absolutely shunned. Uh, personnel selection, psychologists helping in the selection and, and sorting of, of hundreds of thousands of soldiers training on weapons. I mean, the task is really quite extraordinary. And one of the things he has to do is to come up with a a basis upon which you would select the young officers who are going to lead this unit or lead this army. What was the state of the army in 1939 when Canada finally declares war on Hitler? It's tiny. 
it consists of a, of a very small permanent force, as I say, of which Carrera is part. It, it, uh, that, their task was largely to train a, what was called the non-permanent active militia, the militia units that would come out to the local armories across the, uh, the country on Thursday nights. So the state of training wasn't particularly good, although they'd made some real inroads into making the pre-war force a, a bit more responsive to what was going to happen, a bit more mechanical. Uh, you know, the, the, the kind of transitions that are happening in the 20s and 30s are, are pretty remarkable. You know, we're getting rid of horses and bringing trucks and, and jeeps and armored cars into the picture. So it, it, with that said, it's tiny. And Mackenzie King, certainly at the beginning of the war, doesn't want a big army. He doesn't want to see a return of the conscription crisis of 1917-18 that we right. all know about. Right. And so, you know, he, he very, Kurar very astutely, I think, manages to get one division, about 20,000 overseas in the fall of 1939. But from Mackenzie King's perspective, the big war effort at the beginning is going to be uh, air training and to make Canada, to use Roosevelt's phrase, an aerodrome for democracy. Mm. And it is a huge role. But after 1940, especially with the fall of France, Canada's army is going to grow beyond all imagination. And it's Kurar who's going to have to do that. It's a, it's a role that um, I suppose he does quite remarkably well. Now, that's the subject of your book, uh, Inventing the Canadian Junior Army Officer. What is a junior army officer? There wouldn't say it's the difference between the factory floor and management. So the junior officers are the ones who will carry the king's commission and have a set of rights and responsibilities that allow them uh, the right to train, discipline, and lead soldiers into battle. The youngest or the, the most junior rank is the lieutenant the Louis, as they would often use in that parlance. Okay. And uh, the Louis is, uh, you know, the, the question that dear old Harry Greer has to deal with is, where do the Louis come from? And the highest rank of these junior officers is, is what rank? Well, in a battalion, which would largely run to be about a thousand people, all told, you have uh, uh, the largest collection of, of lieutenants who would perhaps lead a, a platoon of 30 or a, uh, the equivalent in the artillery of the armored uh, units. And then you have captains, majors that would be in charge of companies or squadrons. And, and a unit of that size would be then led by a lieutenant colonel, much and, the same way as they are today. And a lieutenant colonel is, is, is that a junior officer still? No, I think by the time you've sort of reached the majority, the major uh, junior officers are lieutenants and captains. Okay. So these are the people who are critically important in battle, are they not? Yeah. And, you know, there's all sorts of expectations that certainly come out of the First World War about what these people should be, how they should behave, how they should be uh, uh, looking after their men. And in some ways, we're, we're taking on the, the, the ghosts of the First World War, particularly in the British context, where we have the, the writings, both you know, some of it bad and some of it quite memorable of the young lieutenants, you know, the fellows who were 
leading units up over the top on the Somme in 1916 who left behind poetry and prayers. The, the anti-war officers, you know, who uh, like Sid, Siegfried Sassoon, who grew up within the British public school system, were naturally then intended to be the young officers and then protested against it as the war went on. So there's the memory of the junior officer in the First World War, and there's a kind of popular mythology that the the life expectancy of a junior officer in the First World War was somewhere between three and six weeks. <laughs> and and so there is that kind of imagery that I think echoes through the 20s and 30s, that somehow these young lieutenants are supposed to behave and, and to be and to, in effect, die in the same way that uh, this kind of romantic vision is established. So we have a lot to live up to. It's, it's, a, it's a theme in your book, this idea of the junior officer um, carrying a certain idea of masculinity. Uh, how much of this was affected by the First World War? Well, I think that it, it very much develops, I think, in reaction to the First World War. There's the heroic image of the young infantry lieutenant uh, these these young, they almost invariably, it seemed, were handsome, uh, eloquent, caring for their men, uh, They and they died with them, and they often died in greater proportion than their men. And I argue that, that there is a kind of image that emerges through the 20s and 30s that these fellows can't possibly be those fathers, dare one say, and in, in a lot of cases, in fact, there are a lot of sons who want to keep up the legacy of their own father's war record in the First World War. So these guys, I, I, I argue that there are lots of ways in which masculinity is a really effective way of understanding a little bit of it, and that in some respects, the war is seen as a kind of, uh, of the heroic leader in the First World War is is a foil for the kind of leader that we're going to see a generation later. Krirar wants to see a more professional army, does he? Oh, absolutely. Sure. I mean, uh, you know, the, the idea that the professional soldier can be replaced by the citizen soldier, you know, young kids growing up in the 20s and 30s, that's really a hard thing for the permanent force to see. Krirar does have a vision of what, as as do the Air Force and the, and the Navy, uh, of what their institutions will look like after the war. And, and certainly, you know, for a lot of people, one of the great issues that, that emerged early in the war is that the Royal Military College is closed down. Which is ironic. Yes, it is ironic. It does seem that way. Uh, and, and of course, there's a great fight over reopening it in the post-war. But, uh, and, in, and in part, part of the fight is, is that it centers on the fact that if you can find uh, young men from the University of Toronto or from uh, uh, Western or Alberta, Manitoba, all of whom had taken some military training at the COTC, the Canadian Officers Training Contingents at the universities, then why would you need a permanent force being created out of the RMC? Mm -hmm. And so there's a real fight over that. And there are, there are ways, you describe in your book, different ways to picture the junior officer. You you mentioned this fellow, Pete Coventry. Can you tell us about Pete Coventry? Well, I stumbled across these uh, 
films that the National Film Board had created with the Army in 1943. And it really fit well into the whole idea that we had that suddenly we faced a shortage of officers in 1942, a shortage of a projected shortage. And what I didn't realize then was that the lengths that the army and using the national film board and using this new medium would, would go to try to project or present an ideal army officer. And I think it probably went against the grain that Harry Crear wanted. Harry Crear wanted educated officers. Uh, fellows who could uh, do all the things that he thought a modern army should do, a scientifically based army. But in 1943, with a shortage, the army is forced to dig deep into the enlisted ranks, in effect, into the shop floor, and, and look for fellows who could, in effect, become officers, and this is a phrase that becomes part of the films, that, that they would come up through the ranks. And, uh, and, and Creer, I think, is kind of reluctant in that sense, you know, to say, no, 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 we really want to have university-based or officers who have some university education. Sounds like a debate that continues still in the Canadian forces. <laughs> Indeed. But it, it, so it's by no means new. And, but in 1943, they realized that they have to start digging deep and they, they have to find people who haven't necessarily finished high school, which is a pretty significant uh, measure in in those times. And so they're digging deep and they have to create a guy named Pete Coventry. And Pete Coventry is this, I'm sure, an officer. I'd love to know more about him. Uh, the films are, are three short films, two of which are on YouTube, and one is on the NFB site. And they follow this young lieutenant through his basic training. He's selected for uh, officer training. He goes off to Brockville, where much of the officer training took place in Canada, and they and and they create this marvelous figure of a popular, uh, good-looking, good. Well, yeah, pretty good-looking guy. <laughs> By no means he's big and strong. You know, he's kind of charismatic. Seems to get along with everybody. He's friendly. Tells a joke. But he, they allow him this, this curious kind of narrative in which they say, well, you know, I'm just, a, I'm just a good old store clerk from somewhere in small town Canada, and I can become a good officer. And uh, he emerges out of OTC Brockville. And then the third film, which is called 13 Platoon, takes him to his first real job of, of coming out of officer training they refer to them as they do in so many different contexts as 90-day wonders. And his job is to take over a group of hardened, suspicious soldiers who are eager to get overseas. And the third film I've always loved, I love them all, but the, the third one in particular shows him kind of winning over these young, uh, impatient, slightly suspicious fellows, you know, who are going to uh, be trained in their final stint before they're sent off overseas. So it's a great little portrait, I think, of a Canadian soldier. The British had a wonderful film, which is still available, called, uh, various names, called The Magnificent Battalion. And uh, in that film, they use David uh, Niven as the young lieutenant who takes a group of British conscripts off to the battles in the desert. So I've often thought Pete Coventry is a kind of Canadian version of of uh, David Niven, and the contrast is lovely. He's, he's this kind of 
you know, small town guy who, by virtue of his knowledge and popularity, manages to lead a group of uh, of young soldiers into battle. It's a it's a revealing film or series of films about what it is that we expected our soldiers to be. Well, I, it's interesting. The timing in this is, 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 is I think, quite fascinating. Is you, it, we're talking 1943, so this is after the Dieppe raid, the disastrous Dieppe raid, but yeah. it's before the it's, it's just before the landings in Italy where the Canadian troops will be very active, and, of course, it precedes the landings in June of 1944. So... The impression we're left with is that the Canadian Army was in something of a crisis in terms of looking for junior officers. Well, in, in the numbers that are presented to them uh, in in the summer of 1942, just before the Dieppe raid, just weeks before, uh, and and for those of us that follow this stuff, the, the the first Canadian Army headquarters is established in the in the spring of 1942. So there's an awful lot going on in 1942 about, you know, the, the next step to creating a full army headquarters, uh, the and, uh, one that first Andy McNaughton will take over and then followed by Currar. And, and there's an enormous amount that's going on there. And I think one of the things that, that keeps coming up in this book and in my current research is the degree to which the army has to sell itself. Mm. And, and it's trying, as I say, uh, Carrera realizes this more than anyone. It has to try to sell itself as an as a effective force that's largely going to be based of, by, uh, created out of volunteers. And so there's an enormous effort, in part through the use of film, to make sure that this army is presented in an acceptable way. Was it successful, Jeffrey, to, to, to recruit quality junior army officers? Well, it's... I, I guess I would say yes. You know, uh, the, the official history of the Canadian Army is written by a guy named Charles Stacey. Yep. And Charles Stacey makes the claim, uh, a rare kind of editorial notion, that the officers that we had in Normandy, especially in the summer of 1944, weren't all that great. This and, is no small uh, accusation. Yeah, it's a bizarre accusation. Um, <laughs> Coming from C.P. Stacey, who was the official historian. Yeah, well, he also had professional army officers kind of looking over his shoulder while he was writing it. Mm-hmm. And I think that, again, it, the, the, the real problem was that if you if you decided that the officers were really good, then that would somehow under, undercut the, the need for a permanent force, for a professional force after the war. Mm. So he makes this comment about army officers, and it's true that there are some that well die and that some uh, who are relieved of command and some aren't doing particularly well but but i'm of the mind that first canadian army is a remarkable organization that in fact bests the forces that are against them and that's uh that that's something that that stacy of course was trying to kind of come to terms with and that a bunch of military historians still try to deal with you know and uh so i i do think that the lieutenants were these people who in a in a curious way were sort of anonymous and uh, and I kind of argue that in, in a lot of different ways, you don't hear much about uh, about them in memoirs. They're sometimes referred to in a in a rather uh, distant way, as if they can't quite remember the names of who these young lieutenants were. Some of them, in fact, much like their fathers, didn't last very long, given the intensity of the battles that they were facing. Mm. Very and, Canadian, uh, isn't it? it it's I'm very Canadian. It's very Canadian, isn't it? 
Well, it is in some ways, you know, and I think it kind of ties into that anti-heroic thing. Yes. Uh, that, that, you know, these guys were, were kind of, it was a process of teaching them how to behave and how to, uh, what to wear and how they were going to lead. And, uh, and it wasn't in the grand dramatic fashion, I suppose, of the First World War, you know, where the young officers would kick a football out onto the battlefield, as legend they would have it. <laughs> These guys were to, were to know something uh, about the science of war. They were to know something about leadership. And, uh, and, and I've always been struck. I start the book with a Herbie cartoon or a series of Herbie cartoons. Herbie was the product of a wonderful cartoonist. Uh, Bing Coughlin, who uh, who created this this kind of sad sack figure, uh, and published it in the army newspaper, the Maple Leaf, and and Herbie is this this fellow who uh, who really does tell us something about what the army was about. You know, the kind of endless regulation, the sort of uh, being caught out in some kind of act that was against uh, army by uh, army regulations, and and I was always struck at the beginning. Uh, at how they portrayed officers. They, they didn't portray them. They were mm. anonymous. And, uh, and I often thought that the role of, of Herbie kind of reflected this issue about the kind of officers. They were, they were anonymous fellows. You know, some of them were caught up in the horrible fighting in Italy and Northwest Europe and died very, very quickly. Uh, some of them were, were people who perhaps were as well respected, I suppose, but, but in large measure, I think we were very well led, and and I think that's reflected in the war record too. The, the way the way about the, the culture of the army yeah. that I was trying to get at, and I yeah. think that was part of the part of the nature of the, how the book comes together. The success of Canada's army marching through Belgium, through the Netherlands, into Germany during the Second World War, you'd think is indicative of the quality of the men who are leading soldiers uh, on the ground. Well, there are all sorts of ways, of course through which we might keep exploring that. Mm -hmm. and, and right now I'm struck from, from this book on, on careers, lieutenants of what role morale played. And one of the crucial elements of however way you define morale, leadership is a big part of it. And was morale good? Do you think? Yeah, I, I do. I'm, I'm struck at, uh, um, there's some recent stuff coming out of Britain right now that's talking about morale and the Commonwealth armies. And uh, my next book really is about morale in the army and, and the numbers of ways that that uh, that the army was absolutely concerned about morale. And it became such a broad approach to morale that starts right at enlistment that that suddenly we realize that the army has to deal with families that are overseas that. Uh, uh, or, or at least the families that are in Canada, while their while their husbands and uh, brothers and so on are in, are in England, morale becomes a huge issue, and leadership is a big part of it. And and again, the junior army officer is going to be the prime carrier, the enabler of that kind of morale, wasn't he? Yeah, I I think so. I I think that you know there's a certain sense in the British Army of how Montgomery, who's the you know leads the British Army to victory in the desert in 1942. He uh, uh, leads an army group in 1943 in Italy and finally in, in, uh, in Northwest Europe. There's an enormous amount in the British literature about what Montgomery does to raise morale. And I'm, I'm less convinced that the Canadians are tied to Montgomery in the same way that the British would be. 
Uh, and, and certainly when you look at the kind of leadership that we have at the divisional level, General Krirar is well-respected, but again, he's not a charismatic kind of guy. He writes these long letters that <laughs> would be more boring to a soldier than inspiring. Nobody's, nobody's going to go into a fight for Krirar, but they'll be going into a fight for their junior officer. Yeah, it is amazing when you read the letters uh, very often of, of how they would refer to a young officer. I just read one the other day uh, in our own archives at the university of, of uh, a guy says, you know, terrific. We have Christmas dinner. This is in 1942. And of course, the officers are supposed to serve Christmas dinner as tradition demands. And then afterwards, they're all sitting around and a couple of guys, a couple of officers come down. One has a ukulele and the other one can sing. And that, you know, he, they sit and sing songs with the soldiers in 1942 at Christmas time. And he says, what a great group of guys. Mm-hmm. You know, this young officer came down and actually was concerned about our welfare. And, and in that kind of weird world, whatever the army represented then, that, that certainly meant a lot to, uh, to so many of these guys. So that, that kind of moral leadership, that friendliness uh, was, was something that sometimes we think, I think it might be overplayed. But it was something that we think distinguished us from the British, who like to keep those officer, other rank distinctions quite quite separate. Now, your book brings up some names that people will know. Uh, Farley Mowat, the writer, for example. What's his experience in all this? Well, so many of us grew up reading Farley Mowat's book, so it was wonderful to be able to follow his war record. And uh, again, it... it it shows the impact of of the war on so many of these guys. Farley Mowat's father was in the First World War, was wounded. He's very close. One of his last books, Farley's last books, was a series of letters that he and his uh, parents shared with him. And uh, he joins the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment in 1940, goes overseas very early on. And I've often thought that Farley Mowat's books were an attempt for him to try to come to terms with his own war record and with his own psychological challenge. You know, we didn't talk about post-traumatic stress in the context of the second world war, but it was there. Mm. And I think that some of the things that he writes in No Bird Sang, great book in 1979, in which he talks about this immense sort of leech that's crawling up his back is really an attempt for him to try to envision the psychological challenge that he faced both during the war and afterwards. So to me, his story is is one of those wonderful ways in which you can get a sense, I think, of, of how he viewed the war, very much in the kind of shadow of his father, very much trying to show himself to be a, a strong, masculine, brave soldier. And and in many ways, trying very hard to come to terms with that image of the heroic soldier and and perhaps in his own mind, not succeeding. And he served as uh, what rank in the Second World War? He was a lieutenant, later captain in uh, the Hastings and Prince Edward Regiment. So he goes over in Italy in 1943 right. and gives a wonderful account. Uh, this, the account that I've got in, in several of his books, does he talk about this uh, wonderful figure, uh, a company commander who he clearly looks up to because he, he aspires to be this man who uh, uh, seems like a kind of 
you know, monster on the battlefield, aggressive and, and uh, powerful and manly. And, and clearly, Farley Mowat looks up to this guy. He's killed on uh, in December of 1943. And it's clear from both the letters that he leaves Mowat as well as the letters that he leaves that are now at the War Museum. He too faced these terrible kinds of, of uh, issues about his own sense that he's going to succeed in battle, that he's going to be brave, that he's going to lead his men. And so it does give us a, a curious kind of way in which we can see how the army builds this sort of image of the sort of officers that they want and how so many of these young guys uh, in their memoirs and their letters try and largely fail to reach that kind of uh, heroic ideal. You also mentioned Earl Burney. Yeah. Captain Earl Burney. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> Earl Burney is, you know, a Trotskyite in the early 30s, <laughs> uh, you know, and uh, uh, there he is, this, this kind of awkward figure, nevertheless, joining the University of Toronto, uh, COTC contingent, new, wonderful new book by Eric McGear on that very topic that will soon be out. Hopefully a movie soon too. <laughs> I didn't realize. <laughs> well, yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just saying. I think it's it's, it's movie material, but it's <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, just to see the generation of these guys coming through, um, and and some of them, of course, you know, Earl Burney and so many others make this amazing impact. And uh, and then Earl Burney, you know, becomes a, a personnel selection officer and then a poet, uh, you know, and it. And I think the, the war has such a dramatic impact on, on people like Mo and on people like Earl Burney. Yeah. One of the most wonderful books to come out of the war is this book by Burney called Turvey, right. a military picaresque, which I would urge your reader or your listeners to, uh, to pick up. It's just a wonderful book, typically Canadian in its, in its humor, in its, you know, in, its, in its satire of army bureaucracy. It's a wonderful book. There's not a whole lot about French Canada in this book, is there? Should be more. No. What was the experience true. in French Canada in, in terms of recruiting junior army officers? Well, it's a great question, and I'm hoping that a student of mine will be taking up this question for us. Uh, it it is worth remembering that the army doesn't, or the Canadian forces don't really become fully bilingual until the 1960s, until mm -hmm. 1968, and. Uh, and so I think for French speakers, particularly for Francophones, whether they were from Quebec or Northern Ontario or uh, the North Shore of New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, they were uh, they did very well if their first language, if they had a fluency in English. And um, and for those that didn't, I think that the the recruiting, the training, uh, the culture of the army very much put them under suspicion and uh, that they they didn't have the kind of, you know, command of the language. It meant that somehow there was something lacking in their personal makeup. It didn't fit the idea of English Canadian masculinity for sure. Exactly. Exactly. And, and uh, good selections. You can see it in the army films that I'm talking about with Pete Coventry, mm. when he's at OTC Brockville, there's a, there's a fellow there by the name of Roger, who, uh, who, who very, I think, beautifully kind of embodies the problem of French Canada. You know, he, he's fluently bilingual, but he's asking his Anglo colleagues for 
the definitions of words in English mm. as he's preparing to give a lecture at, at a topic. Um, with that said, there are some quite remarkable uh, fellows that come out of the war, at least two French speakers, uh, Jacques Dextras and Jean Allard, right. uh, will uh, emerge from the wartime army and, and lead it 20 years later. So, you know, there is this, but nevertheless, there is clearly a difference in the way in which French speakers and, and Francophones are are seen in the army. I think there's a certain suspicion, and I think you're absolutely right, Patrice, it's, there is a perception that they are somehow... Uh, less masculine, if, if that's the phrase, the stereotype that seems to be embodied here. At the end of the day, Jeffrey, are we talking about a success story in terms of Harry Crerar and his and his vision of a more professional Canadian army? Uh, what's your what's your sense at the end of the day? How are we to remember his his administrative mission to make the army something that was better than it once was? I think that we have to always remember where we are in asking a question like that. So let's take us back to 1940. If anyone had said that we would create an army of such a significant size, now it wasn't a big army, it wasn't the British army, it wasn't the US army, it certainly wasn't you know German army. But if, if anyone had said that we would put a, a, an army in the field of such significant numbers, as, as we did, almost 600,000 people mm. serve in the army in various places, both yeah. in Canada and overseas. Um, people would have thought you were crazy. They wouldn't have thought it was possible. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, I mean, I'm, I don't want to wax poetic because I'm always, I'm always fascinated by the challenge and the problems that, that beset the army through that time, uh, personnel questions and, oh my goodness, let alone the political ones, which of course we've studied over the issues of conscription. But when you think about that role, and then you think about the role of, of what, we, uh, what we, what Canadians did in Italy and in Normandy and in uh, Belgium and Northwest Europe, and if we think about the kind of commemorations that'll be happening in the Netherlands over the next few months, you know, Canadians need to, I suppose, set back sometimes and understand what enormous impact, what enormous role they played there, and what uh, and what Harry Crerar managed to achieve. Absolutely. Well, you can wax poetic all you want on this podcast. It's always welcome. Uh, well, thank you. <laughs> I I think that sometimes the commemorative gets in the way of the analytical, or at least of how we should truly appreciate it. But you know, I, I take students on the Canadian Battlefield Foundation tours, and this year we're going to go to uh, Canadian war cemeteries in places like uh, uh, Calais and Adigam mm. and Bergen-op-Zoom and Grosbeek and Holton. And uh, boy, it, it, it is a, a pretty sobering <laughs> experience to see so many of these young guys that uh, lieutenants and corporals and sergeants and privates troopers and so on who uh, who got killed over there. They left their lives there. And uh, yeah, it gives us something to think about. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. Thanks, Patrice. I appreciate it. That was Jeffrey Hayes, the author of Crerar's Lieutenants, Inventing the Canadian Junior Army Officer, 1939 to 1944. It's published by the University of British Columbia Press as part of its fabulous series, called The Studies in Canadian Military History. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. 
please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does, including the publications, its blogs, and more about these podcasts. There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. If you like this stuff, please let people know by using whatever social media you use. It would help spread the message, and we'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation and the L.R. Wilson Institute for History at McMaster University for their support of these recordings. My name is Patrice Dutil. This interview was recorded in the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University on October 21st, 2019 and produced by Michael Smith. Thank you, everybody, and we'll see you next time.